customer uh, obsession. Amazon lived it in every decision. I made a pretty big mistake. And I was with one of the executives explaining what I was going to do to minimize the loss. And he goes, hold on, you're thinking about this incorrect. If you were to take money out of the picture, would you do things differently? And I'm like, of course, here's what I do for the customer. And he's like, well, then that's what you should do. And that blew me away. Just do the right thing for the customer. Don't caveat it with a bunch of other things. If there's inefficiencies or things that don't make sense or drags on profit, that's for you to figure out. Don't push all that complexity to the customer. It was a very freeing feeling on how to think about customer decisions. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. I'm Andrew Tarvin, humor engineer. And I'm Roman Segel, recovering marketer. Andrew and I both got our start at PNG, the Procter & Gamble company, where we both had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at PNG. In this series, through conversations with fellow PNG alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know but want to know more about how they got their start, how they make it work, and what keeps them going. It's kind of like bringing a microphone to a cup of coffee, or in my case, hot chocolate. On today's show, we're talking to P&G alumni leader Alejandro Bethlen, CEO of The Books. Yeah, Roman, this was a really interesting conversation with particular regard to the advantage of having multiple perspectives. Yeah, Alejandro was actually born in Argentina has lived in six countries, and has three citizenships, Argentina, Hungary, and the U.S. So here's a quick bio. Alejandro Bethlen recently became the CEO of The Books Company, an online floral retailer delivering flowers fresh from eco-friendly, sustainable farms to doorsteps nationwide. It's radically disrupting this $100 billion global floral industry with a modern brand and integrated supply chain and responsible sourcing. Prior to The Books, Alejandro spent eight years at Amazon in senior roles across six countries with P&L and operational responsibilities. And of course, he spent seven years at P&G in North America and Latin America in some pretty interesting roles, which is actually where we had the privilege of working together. Alejandro received his MBA from Rice University and recently moved back to the US, now living in Los Angeles with his family. Yeah, what I really like specifically about what he talked about is this insider view of not just one, but two of the world's greatest companies. Yeah, I mean, between working at both Amazon and PNG, an interesting point Alejandro makes is that what's most important is about focusing on doing the best work and not becoming obsessed about things like promotion timing and politics. And that's some advice I've gotten through the years, and it served me well as well, because you never want to fight for the raise or the rating or getting the next cool role. If you do the work, the rest will come to you. I mean, Drew, as an entrepreneur, how do you feel about having to make the case for your work? Well, I mean, certainly at, at P&G and as an engineer, my mindset is, you know, work should be completely merit-based. And, and even from a comedic perspective, you know, Steve Martin says, be so good, they can't ignore you, right? So there is that focus on the work itself. But the other thing is like, people are so busy, they, they are distracted or they may not have heard of you. So as an entrepreneur, in some ways, I have to market what I do, but it's weird to kind of like, brag about yourself. So when I when I have to do it, I try to do it with a little bit of a, a sense of humor. You know, I say I've, I've I've sold thousands of my books online, only half of which were from my mom. You know, a little sense of humor. <laughs> that was a shameless plug, dude. Oh, but speaking of shameless plugs for Alejandro, maybe you should be buying your mom flowers from the books for all of her support. Oh, that was a real smooth segue back. <laughs> but no, and that's also what I think really interesting about the conversation with Alejandro is is this focus on e-commerce because it's it's so important first of what he did at Amazon now at the books because it's it's more important now more than ever and that's something that I've really kind of come to recognize since moving to Panama because it's not quite the same e-commerce infrastructure as it is in the US. Wait, wait. wait. You don't live in New York anymore? Uh, oh, so uh, fun fact, uh, my wife and I have moved to uh, to Panama. My my wife works for the United Nations, got a great opportunity to be the regional advisor for her kind of group in Latin America and the Caribbean. And so I've, I've tagged along to a country I've never been to with a language that I do not speak, but uh, get to experience a little bit of kind of what Alejandro talks about of that diverse perspective and, and gaining new awareness and perspective. I mean, I won't be able to get the Van Halen song out of my head now for the rest of the day. But, you know, back to Alejandro, what's so clear from this conversation with him, and we got to catch up on Panama later, but is Alejandro can see things from so many different angles. 
And that perspective in his life and work has come from living around the world and working around the world. So we hope you'll enjoy our conversation with our pal, Alejandro. Alejandro, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. Really happy to be here. Alejandro, you've had a really interesting career, born in Argentina and living in six countries, seven years at P&G in North America and Latin America in some pretty interesting roles. And then eight years at Amazon in senior roles across six countries with P&L and operational responsibilities. And now you're the CEO of the Books Company, which is an online floral retailer delivering flowers fresh from eco-friendly, sustainable farms, disrupting this massive industry with a very modern brand. And there's so much in there that I want to ask about, but I think folks would also love to hear a little bit more about who you were before the beginning of your career journey. Having lived in several different countries before you even started working, what was that like? Moving around a lot as a kid made me somebody who can strike up a conversation with almost anybody, can get along with almost anybody, can understand, maybe not agree with, but can understand everybody's point of view. And so it's made me able to just jump into different situations as a kid really quickly, adapt, and thrive, right? And so that upbringing of moving around a lot every three years to different countries, different schools, all that really had an impact on my childhood and how I see the world. When you were growing up, what did you imagine you'd be when you grew up? What do you want to be? Oh, wow. Obviously, when you're little, the typical, the policeman, fireman and all that, I think that there was a phase that I wanted to be a lawyer. My grandfather was a doctor. I thought about that, I think, for a couple of hours until I saw blood and realized I can't be a doctor. <laughs> I want to ask a question, though, because you grew up in a lot of different countries. Did what you wanted to be change based on where you are and what you saw? You know, that's a, that's a good question. I never thought about it that way, but I'm sure it did impact. I had a phase of politics that was very shaped by Latin American, my way of looking at Latin America, the unfairness, the corruption of it. So I think so. Like, I think my points of views of how I looked at certain careers was definitely shaped by the things that gave me the emotion to think about them in the first place. So to me, I never thought myself like when I was, wanted to be a politician as a politician in the U.S. where I wanted to help the working class. Back then, I think I felt it was less of an issue. But when you looked at South America... It was horrible, right? Well, you were in Argentina, what, in the 80s and the 90s, right? Well, no, I left Argentina when I was three and went back after university, right? Okay. And so most of my life was in Bolivia, Venezuela, and the U.S. And so to me, the high school years were in Venezuela, which also shaped my way of thinking, my way of looking at race relations, my way of looking at social income classes and stuff like that. And I was in Venezuela during a good time right? During good years, stable years. But again, being from Argentina and going back often, I, I've also seen Argentina go from military dictatorship to semi-stable government, to economic collapse, to the situation they're in now. And so it shaped me in a lot of different ways, right? And I think that the juxtaposition of also living in the U.S., it's made me look at different problems in different ways. And so a lot of times when my kids will come up with a problem, I always joke and say that's a first world problem, <laughs> right? My son will be like, hey, our soccer pitch isn't really straight. There's an angle. I'm like, that's a first world problem. And so things like that, I think, have shaped me. And so I can kind of chameleon into different situations. Yeah. What was your first job? First of all, you made money. First Technically, believe it or not, was renting my bicycle when I was probably like six years old, seven years old. I got as a gift an amazing bicycle. Everybody always wanted to ride it. I didn't necessarily want to share it. <laughs> a kid offered me whatever it was in Venezuelan pesos at the time. I'm like, hey, here's an idea. And so I would offer it to different kids at that price, like whenever they wanted to rent it. But the first official job, my father... Probably when I was 13, 14 years old, my friends would go to Mexico to go back to their family or, you know, Argentina or whatever it would be. And the deal he would have is that I'd have to work half the summer and however much money I made in that half the summer, he would match it. And with that, I'd go spend a month, month and a half with friends in, in a different country. And so that was the first time that taught me kind of like, wow, how cool that what I'm doing is actually paying for some of this, right? And so it was a really intelligent way of, for him to kind of teach me the value of working to get what you want. 
And I think it was at a restaurant where he knew the owner. <laughs> and they put me as a dishwasher, which I hated. Then they let me cook, be one of the line cooks, which I loved because there's like a crazy sense of camaraderie. Like you have all these older Hispanic guys and this 14, 15 year old kid, right? And so it was a lot of fun. Do you think you're more similar or more different to that young man back then at the line cook? I don't know. You hear people say this as they grow up. Like I still feel like that 15, 16 year old person. I think that I'm just as idealistic. I'm just as curious. I'm just as accepting or romanticizing the lower class and how do you help them? Or more than how do you help them? How do you treat them with respect? But I've become a lot more patient. And you could say that's good and bad, right? Like I think that you hear the youth now when they protest that we're sick of waiting, right? Well, I think that with age, you become more patient, which can slow things down. But I'm more patient about things than I was in the past. So I want to jump into your career a little bit. You started at P&G straight out of business school. What was one of those early career moments, those things where you learned a lesson and it didn't have to be a good or a bad lesson. When I started at P&G. Uh, well, at the beginning of your career, the beginning of your professional career coming out of business school. Yeah. So I was in P&G. I went straight from my MBA at Rice University to Proctor. The amazing story is, you know how at Proctor, it's not like you necessarily know exactly where you're going to go, what brand, what project, everything. And so I knew I was going to home care, I believe. I knew likely what they told me was air care. And I was doing my first day of onboarding with, what was the gentleman's name? Ed Ryder. Do you remember that? Who ran the PNG archives? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was Ed Ryder. And he, again, Ed was amazing. A lot of passion and what he did and tried to teach us about the history of the company. And he showed us how he started with candles and soap and all that. And he goes, and I hear a rumor we're looking at getting back into candles after 167 years out of it. And I was like, wow, how cool is that? That's super cool, like 160 years and they're coming back. In day two, I sit down with Martin Hedich and Martin goes, yeah, you're going to be running that project. You're launching Febreze Candles. And so that was such a cool feeling, like a feeling that you're jumping right into kind of the heritage of the company. And I think that that role had a huge impact because it was a bit non-traditional for P&G. So if you think of P&G, you go to work for a Tide and you say, I have this idea. No, we tried it 27 years ago. It didn't work. I have this idea. No, we've done it three years. Look, at the end of the day, here's the core things you need to consider. Don't mess it up. Okay. Candles, we didn't know how to make candles. We hadn't made them 160 years. We had no facilities that handle wax, no facilities that had wicks. This was surprising. We had no vendors that did glass because we didn't have any products with glass. We had, what was the vice chairman, Bruce... Do you remember him? I'm the worst with names now, man. <laughs> so one of the vice chairmen at the time, I'll forget his name, but I remember him looking at me and going, I want you to know that I didn't agree with this decision to launch candles. I think it's risky with open flame, et cetera, et cetera. Be careful. Don't mess this up. And you're like, what? this is the vice chairman telling me this, right? And so it was tough. It was very much more entrepreneurial, much more startup than your traditional role at Proctor. And we really had to, from scratch, figure out how to make candles, which as counterintuitive as it sounds, it's really difficult to make good candles. And so I think that taught me so many great P&G and entrepreneurial components at the same time. It feels like a seed was planted because as I recall, as we got to know, I met you somewhere in the middle of that. Yeah. You never took the normal role. And I always admired that. You always took, not the weird, but not the, oh, that makes sense. It sounds like you were always taking some the interesting challenge. Yeah. Somebody one time said, some brand manager when I was in ABM, that you need to be thinking three rolls down the line. I'm not good at that, like thinking three rolls down the line. I am good at looking at one role down the line to say, how does that amplify my skill set and make me a good candidate for more roles? So I always kind of thought of like a multiplication effect. And so to me, when I worked on Febreze, the type of experience I had, and, and again, to be clear, Febreze was at a time where you could put a Febreze sticker on anything and it would sell and grow 30% a year, right? It was just a hot brand with great equity and it was working really well. And so then I kind of went back and thought, huh, day one at Proctor, I said, I'd never want to work on a brand like Tide. That was my day one quote. It's boring. Doesn't make any sense. 
a year into my Febreze assignment, I was like, I need to go work on Tide. And the, re- the reality was, is that I always looked at how do I flex different muscles? And so to me, I love the entrepreneurial. I love the growth. I love that story of air care. But at the end of the day, it was easy to grow, right? You put a good quality product, you put good quality copy, it was going to grow. Whereas you look at Tide, you had to fight tooth and nail for every tenth of a share point. Yeah. Yeah. And it was tough and it took a completely different strategic importance. So to me, that was, I was like, yes, that's what I want to go do. And so I, I went to go meet with Kevin Crociata, Suzanne Watson. Crociata is probably one of the most infectious leaders you, you can meet. And so I said, yeah, that's where, that's where I want to go next. I want to go learn on how do you fight tooth and nail and scrape for that share. And yeah, and so that was the next role. I always kind of looked at it from what's the next thing. From there, I took a role in Latin America, in Ariel, Latin America. And to me, what I looked at is like, okay, it's tied. If in Tide, I went to one of the Tide factories and said, manufacturing facilities and said, hey, I have an idea on how you can improve this or do this. They'd be like, thank you, young kid. Move along. <laughs> Get out of the way. We have an 18-wheeler every six seconds coming. Then you go into Latin America and man, you start to realize that North America aren't operators, they're marketers, right? And in Latin America, they weren't great at marketing, but they were amazing at day-to-day operations. And sorry, saying they weren't great at marketing is wrong. They spent much more time in day-to-day operations. And there you'd have to have the manufacturing facilities in each country. You'd wake up and they'd ban one of the chemicals that you import from Mexico into Venezuela so you couldn't make detergent. They'd ban the plastic in Argentina because the pellets came from Mexico. They, it was constant revolution-like type things and problems and pricing and devaluations. And so I had read somewhere that Coca-Cola made all their top executives go through Latin America at some point in their career to understand that type of flexibility and thinking and management that you have to have. And then I had also heard Melanie Healy talk about her time in Brazil for Procter, where she turned on the radio and learned that the currency was devalued and she had to change the pricing and the product. And so I'm like, I want to do that. To me, Tide, you're scraping your, your knuckles tooth and nail for a little bit of share. But man, I want to have all those bombs going off every third days that really shake the foundations and you have to rethink about. Yeah, because it almost trains a different set of impulses and instincts. 100%. 100%. And so that's that's what I did, right? Now, when I went there, there was a lot of things that were happening at Proctor that I was starting to have a little bit more angst with. More and more and more, we were going from a company that was one pager, right, driven, to a company where PowerPoint was creeping in more and more and more. <laughs> we were going from a company where rock in the boat and rule shaking was okay or accepted to a company where the bureaucracy was becoming very difficult to manage, right? And I think in Panama, going to run Ariel is probably a year in, I was 80% of my time was with the paperwork, the bureaucracy, 20% of my time actually doing what I'd like to think of as impact. And that's where I started to struggle mentally with the role. Well, what's interesting is we lost touch when you were in Latin America. And the next time I saw you, I think it was actually like a global conference for the PNG alumni, you were at Amazon and I was at a startup. Yes. I think we were both relatively early in our, our jumps out of the company. And yeah. I remember that day in Miami kind of comparing notes on the entrepreneurial nature. Because my assumption was, okay, you're kind of at the P&G retail, even though there's this big internet thing. But you're like, no, the entrepreneurial nature of how the decisions were getting made was something that was interesting to you. Can you talk about that shift between, I mean, two of the biggest companies in the world, but operating very, very differently, even though they're in similar spaces? Yeah. And so, well, very differently, sort of. And let me explain why. So so to me, when Amazon first called me, I turned them down twice. In my next step, I didn't see a retailer, right? And I was at Google taking some directors from Latin America to visit Google. You know how they do those executive trips where you go for a week? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was with uh, Sejal Shah, who was from Google, and we planned this trip to take a lot of the directors to try to evangelize them a little bit more and understand a little bit more the digital. So we took them there, and one of the Amazon GMs was like, look, if you're going to be in California for two weeks, why don't you fly up? 
during the weekend, meet with the team on Monday, and you can decide, right? Like we're much more than a retailer. We can walk you through a lot of the things that we're doing. So again, like any good student, you're going to do a little research before you walk into that type of situation. And I was blown away by this concept that this wasn't a retailer. It was a tech company that was doing retail. And that type of thinking really opened my mind. And because when you look at yourself from that lens, it opens up a plethora of opportunities. And Amazon didn't do anything that Walmart, Target, Nordstrom's, all of those guys couldn't have done. But they looked at themselves through the lens of being a retailer. So a retailer doesn't create a voice assistant. But Amazon didn't see themselves as a retailer. Amazon saw themselves as a tech company that was in retail. And to me, that was super, super, super exciting. And then I just start fast forwarding and going, okay, if I get this experience, every company in the world is going to have to understand this type. You're skating to where the puck was going. Exactly. Exactly. And so early on, to be honest with you, like it was funny, I started in 2012. It was duct taped together. It was duct taped together. The Amazon that is now from a retail perspective where 99% of a lot of the decisions are automated was not the Amazon I joined in 2012. And I loved it. I loved it. And then when we talk about the differences with Proctor, they're actually similar in a lot of ways, right? There's definitely some differences, but they're similar in a lot of ways. They're both very data-driven. And so data is very important. They're both written cultures. Proctor started to do away a little bit with it. I'm sure they're, they've swung back now, but I don't think I opened PowerPoint in my eight years at Amazon. Well, at Amazon, it's the press release. They're both they're very customer-obsessed, right? I think that there was a time where, unfortunately, Proctor put an asterisk between the customer obsession and like it depended on the quarter, on the numbers, on the margin. But Amazon lived it in every decision. I made a pretty big mistake my second year there that cost us, I don't know, like $250,000. And I was with one of the executives explaining to him what I was going to do. And he goes, hold on, I think you're thinking about this incorrectly. What I was going to do to minimize the loss. And he goes, if you were to take money out of the picture, don't think about money. Just think about what happened. Would you do things differently? And I'm like, of course, if money wasn't out of the picture, here's what I do for the customer. He's like, well, then that's what you should do. Right. And that blew me away. Like it was so freeing of a thinking that just do the right thing for the customer. Don't caveat it with a bunch of other things. And that's how Amazon thinks a lot. And if there's inefficiencies or things that don't make sense or drags on profit, that's for you to figure out. Don't push all that complexity to the customer. And so it was a very freeing feeling that they were kind of like a step ahead on how to think about customer and customer decisions. And there's a lot of Proctor people that have been very successful at Amazon. I'd say half that I took over there. (laughs) So there was a lot of similarities. And I really, really, really thrived in that environment. They're okay with risk taking as long as you, you know what you're your shit and you're buttoned up. They're okay with you pushing the envelope and really thinking about things differently. They're okay with pushing decision-making down so you don't have to be getting things approved all the time. And so that, that to me was just a great experience. In either of those just kind of amazing range of roles at arguably two of the world's greatest companies, were there any tough lessons where things just didn't work out along the way? Yeah, always, right? Always. And I think... Somebody told me at Proctor that the things that get you promoted the fastest will hurt you longer term. And the things that get you promoted the slowest help you longer term. And what he was saying is that you want to get promoted fast, stay in the same brand in the same category your whole career, right? You do a good job. It's a lot faster to get promoted. But later when they're looking at general managers at Proctor, they'll be like, he has no experience in this. He's been doing X. No diversity of experience. You're not going up the mountain sideways. Exactly. And then he said, now, however, if you build your career by all these different skill sets and jumping different type of roles to work out different muscles, it'll hurt you in the short term. You'll get promoted to brand manager slower, to director slower, et cetera, because you don't have the advocacy in the different areas that you're going yet. And it takes a while to build those advocacy. And so I think that even though I guided my career like that, thinking about what's going to make me the best GM, there was always a disappointment when you were passed up for the next promotion, right? It made you work harder. And also when you go as an expat and be it at Amazon or 
at Proctor where expats aren't viewed as quote unquote, one of ours, right? You're viewed as a North American resource that's coming here for two, three years, and then you go back to North America and they can figure out your promotion. So you're not, you're not taking care of or protected in the same way, right? And it's not a bad story. It's just human nature, right? So if you have a GM, they have their four or five people that they have under their wing for the last five, six, seven years in Latin America. You show up, they're not going to just kick people out and put you there. And so I think that those instances always make you kind of question, am I doing this right? Am I thinking about this right? And you just have to step back and kind of look inside and decide how you want to handle those situations. So I think that that's one of the things that's been hard. Take the longer path. You're going to learn more along the way and that's going to make you better. But, and I think the, another thing someone once told me is like, don't focus on the promotion, do the best damn work and the rest will sort itself out. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. But you did a lot of interesting roles and you moved through them, not in terms of how long you spent on the role, but you made kind of aggressive moves to very diverse roles time and time again across both companies. Was there ever a moment when you thought you needed to take your foot off the gas pedal? Or is your foot still on the gas pedal? It's funny. I never felt like I was rushing. So what I try to do, I never want to fight for a raise or fight for a promotion or fight for a rating. I really don't. I just think it's awkward, right? I want to do the best damn work I can Yeah. where people are giving me the promotion, giving me the raise, giving me the rating. And so what's happened with me is that I've been able to make some really good relationships with some really good mentors that's all, that have always been one or two steps ahead of me that have always pulled me to the next thing. And so my speed has never been because, okay, I'm done with this. I want to move. My speed has always been somebody coming on, okay, now I need you to follow me and do this, right? And that has, that has served me well. There's, look, there's pros and cons on that diversity. Now that said, one of my key philosophies in life is that if you're happy with where you are, you can't question every single thing that got you there, right? And so when I look at my career, I would have never gotten the CEO role if I hadn't had the scaling experiences from scratch at Proctor, the brand marketing fundamentals from Proctor, the online e-commerce shops from Amazon, the last mile experience from Amazon, my last role at Amazon. If I hadn't taken those what are viewed as diverse roles, I wouldn't have had the skills that were required for what they needed of the CEO, right? And I always joke, like when they say that we needed a marketing, e-commerce, scaling, international, and last mile, that there was probably like two guys on LinkedIn that met those requirements, and I just happened to be one of them, right? But so I think that in this role, and in my first couple of months in this role, it's where you kind of look back and go, oh, wow, okay, I did the right thing. Because now all the different situations I'm facing, I know. I've seen them. I know what questions to ask. I know what type of people to bring in. So there was a method to the madness. And it's only now that I feel like, okay, it's all been worth it and paid off. I want to ask you about the new day job. Because people who know about the books, and I've known about it for years, it's okay, it's an online flower retailer. But if you go look up any business article about the company, it's about supply chain and sustainability, sustainable sourcing. What has been your experience jumping in headfirst where it almost feels like those two things are at the center of delivering the great consumer e-retail experience, but the competitive advantage is the vertical supply chain, the sustainable sourcing to kind of take on, I don't know, challenge an industry and the way they've been doing things. So if you think about it, again, the type of skills that were needed, at the end of the day, we don't have a very complicated supply chain until you get to the last mile. Right. And last mile, I think, is the crux of all, all, all supply chains. And so they really wanted my thinking on the last mile component. Right. So if you think shipping from Latin America, from uh, Ecuador, Colombia, Kenya, or sometimes California farms is a pretty good percentage of our cogs. Right. However, as you want to scale, one of the best ways you take some of that cogs out is really figuring out your last mile. And there's myriad of different ways you can do that. So they wanted somebody that had that experience. Second, though, they wanted somebody that had experience branding. And so one of the things that really, to me, was so cool and why I decided to pursue and, and later take this role was as I started it the first time, just like with Amazon, when they reached out to me, I'm like, ah, I don't think this is for me. I don't have cold chain experience. I don't fair trade, organic uh, farming. I don't have a lot of that experience. One of the board members said, I still want to talk to you. And of course, I'm going to do my homework if I'm going to talk to somebody on the board. And I was blown away that here you have a category that's highly emotional. 
you look at people when they open flowers or interact with flowers, how their facial expressions change, right? From a marketing perspective, it's a dream, right? And it's unbranded, right? There's no brands. And so, of course, people are like, well, but it's a commodity. So is coffee, right? And if you look 30 years ago, 40 years ago, somebody said, let's go drink coffee. You'd go to some diner and just get whatever was in the brown pot. And now there's an emotional connection with coffee. There's an emotional connection with coffee brands. Tiffany's has done that with, with a lot of the jewelry, De Beers. I mean, you can go on and on with these type of water, right? And so to me, something so emotive that wasn't branded and that the experience wasn't branded at own holistically end to end blew me away. And so if you think of the 1-800-Flowers and FTDs, their business model is different because when you order from them, all they do is route it to the nearest florist in the zip code that the recipient of the flowers is going to be, that you're sending it to. And they just take a commission. So they can't brand it because it's not their flowers. It's whatever 15,000 different florists in the U.S. flowers where they're buying it. They can't own the customer experience because you have 15,000 florists. Some are going to be amazing. Some are going to be okay. Some are going to be on time. Some are going to be late. You can't own that total experience. You're a middleman. And so to me that nobody's disintermediated the supply chain and try to own that full experience was mind-blowing and something that I thought, man, I'd love to do that. And I think I'd be really good based on my back. What has been the biggest surprise since you've gone, while it's still kind of a big brain and a big business, it's a much smaller company than these bigger two that you spent your yeah. career at. Yeah. And you hear a lot of, I'll never forget Paul Verashu, brand manager for Gain, went to go work. I can't remember what company it was. And in an interview, he said, one of my biggest learnings is that strategic thinking isn't something that just everybody does. And so I think it's that. It's like the talent depth. I've been 16 years at Procter & Gamble at Amazon. The bar of talent is absurd. It's some of the highest in the world. So I always joke when I mentor people and I tell them like, look, there's not 11 messies on the field. There's a messy and then there's this guy and that guy and some are good, some are great, some of them you want to trade, but that's who you have, right? And your job is to get the most out of all of them. And by the way, you can't have Messi hold the ball 100% of the time. It won't work. And so that's been the mentality I've taken. My job as, quote unquote, the coach is how do I get the best out of that team? Right? And that's something I, I love doing and thinking. So things that we think are, quote unquote, big and obvious that others hadn't been thinking about that way. And now a word from our sponsor. Today, we're talking to Andrew Tarvin, co-host of the PNG Alumni Pod. Drew, wait, what's going on here, dude? What do you mean, Roman? Where you're supposed to be asking me thoughtfully leading questions about my great new ad, Venture Up. Oh, gosh. Does it really come to this, dude? <laughs> what do you mean? Is this supposed to be like one of those public radio pledge drive ads? Uh, I don't know what you're talking about, Roman. We don't have any tote bags yet. Okay, then what the heck is this about? Well, Roman, you know this podcast doesn't exactly pay for itself. What? Are you trying to tell me that guest microphones and post-interview production doesn't grow on trees? Uh, sadly, no. And you and I do have day jobs and families, so we probably shouldn't be hand-delivering loaner microphones to John Pepper or Meg Whitman anymore. We've come so far. I actually had a friend walk a microphone over to Edward Goh's house in Cincinnati once, and I even left one on Salesforce Executive's porch. Right. See, exactly. We've got to step up our game. And by now, you've heard some of the fantastic ads from a number of P&G alumni entrepreneurs. And we're grateful to all of our early supporters. But we also need your help, the listener, to step in too. Yeah, each week, many of you, having worked at or never worked at PNG, tune in to hear learnings from leaders. And we want you to feature on an upcoming show. This is a great way to let people know about your business. Past sponsors include independent advertising agencies, consultancies on both sides of the pond, software companies, fellow alumni podcasts, DTC and retail brands, and even organizations that do good like the PNG Alumni Foundation and the Freedom Center. Sponsor packages are affordable and flexible. They can be single episode sponsorships or we can create multi-episode packages. Why not be the sponsor for a few months and we might even have you on an episode if you've got the learnings. We can even create bigger integration packages with the broader PNG Alumni Network. I mean, we do know people. Roman, aren't you still on the board of the PNG Alumni Network? Well, after this ad, I'm not sure for how much longer, Drew. <laughs> well, operators are standing by. We'd love to explore a partnership with you, our favorite listener. Dude, you can't say that. 
John Pepper, our favorite listener, is listening. Sorry, I meant uh, our other favorite listener after John Pepper and my mom. And my mom. Yeah, so that makes that person the fourth favorite listener. So be a minch, sponsor the pod, and we may even throw in that free tote bag eventually. Email us at pgalumpod at gmail.com. Let's have a chat, and we promise you'll never have to listen to a terrible ad like this again. Uh, Bremen, I think you meant to say a great ad like this. I mean, it was full of humor that works. Uh, Drew, I think I now have to charge you as a sponsor. (laughs) I'll have my people call your people. And now, back to our show. So to kind of shift gears a little bit about from work to life, and work-life balance is, I don't want to call it a myth, everyone has to figure it out, but as you've made big career choices, and you've made some big ones to take you to different countries, different types of roles... How did the role of family factor into all of those decisions? I think, reflecting back, especially now, that I've been a little selfish on it. Where I got lucky was that my family loves the experiences and loves the lifestyle of moving around new cultures and all that. And so I don't think I considered them as much early on or the pros and cons for them. I looked at it, I don't want to say more simplistically, but I looked at it like this is going to be a great experience for them and I want them to be world citizens like I am. So for me, I don't feel like I'm from anywhere. I feel I'm a mix of a lot of different things. I wanted them to feel that. And I didn't necessarily consider as much as I should, is that what they want? I got lucky that it is what they want or it's become what they want. But I think it's it was a lot of luck falling into that. And I think my kids now like that. And so when we went to Germany, they were all in. They thought it would be amazing. And when I started exploring things outside of Amazon and my son was going through a phase where he was obsessed with USC and he wanted to go to university when he graduates high school in USC, which is in Los Angeles. So when I told him that that's one of the, the roles I was considering, it just worked out really well. I think my wife, for her, it's been a little bit more difficult because I think coming back to the U.S. right now, socially, it's going through a lot, right? And I think it's a lot to process with the virus, with the political situation, with the protest, with the fires in California, a lot to process at the same time, especially coming from a Germany that's much more stable politically, right? But I think it's been tough. Now, going back to your original comment, kind of work-life, I don't think I've done it great. I really loved a lot of the stuff that Jim Lafferty, XPNG, used to say about always be there for your family. I'd give myself a C minus, a C, on always being there for my family. So not horrible, but I could have done it more often for those moments. And I try to do that much more now. And also, yeah, I don't, I don't believe in, in work-life balance. I think it's an extremely personal thing how you divide that, right? And so to me, what I try to do is make sure that I'm giving everybody flexibility to do how they, especially in these times. And sometimes that means what I call is leaving loudly. And so I try at times to say like, hey guys, I'm taking the afternoon off, but announce it to my whole leadership team. Instead of trying to hide and just acting like I'm not, no, saying I'm taking the afternoon off just to make sure they understand it's okay to do these things. It's okay to take time for yourself. It's okay to block your lunch. When my family was still in Germany, I was here for two months before my family came here. And I would block my calendar from 11 to 1, which was 8 to 9 their time, 8 to 10 their time. And during that time, I would eat lunch while they were eating dinner on Zoom. And we'd talk and we'd try to do kind of like a family dinner. And it was non-apologetic. Those two hours I'm blocking to, to keep up with my, my family. And so I think that those type of things are really important to allow each person to realize what their work-life balance is. To me, I'm okay working long days, but weekends I don't want to work. Weekends I try as much as possible to shut down, and that's when my mental – how I mentally recharge. I've had people that I've I've worked with that want to leave at 5 o'clock every day, but they work on Sunday afternoons to get ready for the week. Do what you need to do. And I think that I've been lucky to have a lot of great bosses that have modeled that behavior of just, it doesn't matter that you work 60 hours or or 40 hours, get your stuff done, right? And if you can't get your stuff done, make sure that you're sitting down and with your boss and prioritizing what needs to be done. I love that idea of leaving loudly. It's something that doesn't get said enough, but 
especially now that you're in the hot seat, I feel like you have to kind of set the example and set the tone based on what was afforded you by managers you used to work with. Yep, I agree. You've alluded to the moment we're in right now. These are not normal times. While these are pretty big problems, some of these problems were solvable. <laughs> you alluded to Germany and kind of how things are being handled there. So as someone coming back to America, who's someone who's lived around the world and seen it from lots of different angles, the back and forth of Latin America, the stability of Europe in the in-between that we have in America, as a leader, what advice do you give to our leaders based on, I mean, if, if you had a magic wand, if you were put in charge of some of these responses and some of these things that we're doing, what would you do? What would you say to our leaders? The history of that, of you as a company, you as a leader, is, and how you interact, how you react to these situations is being written right now. And I think that being quiet is not an option, right? It's not an option. And of course, as you can imagine, I've been CEO for three, four months. And one of the cold buckets of water on my head was, oh, no, like I have to respond to this. I can't be quiet. Like I'm the head of the company. <laughs> Right. And you have to have a point of view and drawing the line between where do we need to stand as a company and where it's not our place to stand as a company is not simple. Right. And so to me, there are situations where you can't afford to be quiet. And and so to me, like with the Black Lives Matter, that was a very important one. And a couple of days after, not only an important one, but probably one of the biggest growing moments in my career I've had. And to be quite frank with you, embarrassing moments in my career. Because too often, as you can say you're about diversity, this, that, and the other, but what I heard loud and clear is a lot of uh, the Black people are sick of us telling them, the non-Black people asking the Black people, well, tell us how we can do better. Tell, And they're like, it's not for us to tell you. Go figure it out. You're the leader, right? And so to me, that took a lot of soul searching, a lot of soul searching to try to understand how do I better understand the situation? How do I get closer to understand both the structural issues, the real data, as well as what they're feeling? And so I had our Black employee set up a call with me where it was, to me, one of the most humbling experiences that I've had, where they were in nice words saying, you're not doing enough, Right. And probably one of the few times in, in a work environment where I've cried, because you start realizing how raw the situation is and how just being, quote unquote, nice is not enough. It's not enough. And until you have the processes in place. And so that's that was a humbling experience for me. And I think that that's I've had to be very aggressive and pushing both HR and legal for us to try to push through as much change as we can, right? But it's not easy. It's not easy. And I think a lot of companies are doing a great job. Other companies are just waving a flag that we support, but it's not enough, right? And I think that more needs to be done. And then unapologetically, I think that we worry too much about perception of, well, if we did this, or if I said I need this, would it look bad? Tough. I told you earlier that I've become more patient. This is a time where you can't be. We're thinking that you're okay isn't enough. Words aren't enough. You need to see it in the action. And so to me, literally, from every executive position down, all the important ones, I'm involved in all the screenings. The other day, I told one of the executives that we're not moving forward with your loop until there's a 50-50 slate of male and female right? We will not do final interviews until we have a 50-50 slate. And so it's about doing stuff like that. And again, hopefully government officials aren't listening to this and having pushback from your HR and your legal, yeah, but you can't do it that way. Well, I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> if somebody's going to come after me because I'm doing this, then so be it. Because you're doing the right thing, right? Yeah. And so I think it's that. It's in the U.S., too often you get, it's all about the legal and the HR and the precedents and this, that, and the other. And I think at times it can hinder forward progress. And so what I'm trying to be is a lot more forceful and I don't care. This is what we're going to do. It's not easy though. I think that it's volatile times. I think that you add COVID to that and emotions are running deep. I've gone from being an executive that was freaked out that we're not going to be able to perform at the same level with this work from home to an executive that is much less worried about that and much more worried about 
how do I ensure my employees don't burn out? Because the lines are so blurred between on and off now that I feel that they're on much more than they used to be, right? And so now it's much more about how do I get them to take the time off? How do I get them to feel okay blocking two hours during the middle of the day to take care of their kids in their Zoom call? Do I have the right benefits in place for what they need now, right? And so I think it's, I'm spending a disproportionate amount of time gladly on those issues than just the business issue. Yeah, John Pepper said once, it's not about what you do, it's how you make people feel. And that's kind of what I like about your approach. You're putting a disproportionate amount of time to focus on the moment and what the people on your team are going through right now. And I think that's a long-term play, but it's the right play to make. It's absolutely. I mean, Peter Drucker says culture eats strategy for lunch, and I believe it. I believe it. You have a passionate team that feels loved, trusted, and protected. They're going to break through any wall you want. You have a team that doesn't feel loved, feels like you're ignoring them, they're burning out and all that. They're not going to take risks, right? And so absolutely, it's the right thing to do as a, as a person and the right thing to do as a company. What excites you about the future? To be honest, I feel like rejuvenated being at a company this size and being at a company where Alex Tosolini used to call big and obvious innovation in Fabricare. And to me, it's that. It's like where you just see big and obvious steps where there's a lot of meat that you can go after and have a right to win. So I really like that. And it's funny because there's being new to this pure startup thing. There's two questions that people always ask me that I, I'm just not wired to think about, right? Like a number one is they say, what's your exit strategy? And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. And, and I don't want to think about it. Like I want to build an amazing company, an amazing brand, and then that'll sort itself out. There's an analogy or a correlation to what we were talking about ratings. I don't want to sit there and fight about me being there. Just do your work. Let it happen. And that's how I think about exit. And the other one is competition. And I learned a lot of this at Amazon that it's not that you can't think of competition, but too many companies obsess over the competition. And I don't think about the competition. I look at the things that we're doing, what the customer wants, where the gaps are, where the product gaps are, the business gaps are. And I want to execute against those to the best of the company's abilities. And then things will go with the right momentum forward, right? But not obsessing over competition. So to me, when I look at all the opportunities the company has, when I look at very luckily and fortunately, the COVID has been less of a headwind than a tailwind for us. I think that there's just a lot of different opportunities for us to continue to grow. We've only got a few more minutes, Alejandro, but I want to shift gears and Ask some fun questions. Mm -hmm. What's something about you that surprises people? Huh. It's usually the, and this is usually like in phase two when they get to know me a little bit more, that at first it's very easy, depending on what language I'm speaking, for people to think I'm Argentine or American or all that. But when they realize that there's a lot of idiosyncrasies that I don't get or I don't have, they're a bit surprised that I can come across as an American, as an Argentine. But having never really lived my full life in either place. And so usually that's something that people find interesting. So you've been around to a lot of different places and you've lived in a lot of different places, but what's one new place that you want to go to? Wow. Interesting. So my philosophy is be careful not to live in the past or in the future, right? Live in the present. Because if not, when you move around a lot, you can be constantly grumpy thinking of the past or romanticizing the future. So I'm really good at enjoying where I am, right? That said, I don't know. I'd love to live in Europe again. I'd love to live in New York. I'd love to live in a city like Moscow. I'm quite open. I mean, there's very few places that I would say never, right? To me, it's usually not just the location, but the challenge. So I've always been lucky that when people go, do you have any limitations on where you would move? It depends on the challenge, right? What's the role? What would I get to do? And so to me, Tying those two together is what's really interesting to me. And then from a much later on, I hope, from a retirement, it will probably be, depending on where the kids live, having something in Europe and then probably like a, a small apartment in New York or Miami or something like that to be closer to the kid. Nice. Who's someone out there that you would want to get coffee with? Oh, wow. There's some people like that I admire a lot, ex-proctor people like Bracken. Bracken and I have had a really good relationship over the years. Every time we've seen each other when I was at Amazon at the P&G conferences, 
I really admire his thinking. He's such a thoughtful, holistic leader. I'd love to get coffee with some political leaders, right? I think that's fascinating and trying to learn how they view the world. I'd love to get coffee with, there's so many, like Mary Barra from GM, the things she's done to the culture there and as tough as they are, I'd love to get coffee with her. I'd love to get coffee with David Taylor, right? David Taylor inherited a pretty tough situation and what he's been able to do with what I humbly, humbly thought was not enough of rocking the boat has been impressive. So to me, like to understand where did you draw the line on how much to rock and how much not to rock? I'd love to get coffee with John Laguerre, the ex-T-Mobile, right? I love these cultural stories. He hopped into a dying phone brand and through cultural shift and strategy, which is tough to do, made it an amazing mobile carrier. So yeah, I don't know. I love those stories of waking up sleepy companies, changing them. And I think Bracken did that with Logitech. Lagar did that with T-Mobile. Taylor's doing that with P&G. I love that. That's awesome. So what's one final piece of advice or even a challenge that you'd give to the next generation of leaders? More and more and more, we have to start blending our personal and community morality with business right? We have to stop separating the environment, race inequality, a lot of these moral debates that we're having, a lot of issues that we're having, and we need to start embedding them and making them work into the way companies operate and stop hiding behind the fact of your responsibility to the shareholder, right? I think too many times we hide behind fiduciary responsibility and don't make the right choices. That's great. And so I think that that's what I love that the new generation, I I think that they're a lot less willing to compromise on those things. Someone once told me that old people are patient and young people are less patient. 100%. Agree. (laughs) Agree. Well, Alejandro, it's been fantastic catching up after so many years and you're at the beginning chapter of a really exciting journey and I think you're starting to shake things up again. So best of luck, man. Thank you, man. It was great catching up. And that's our show. Like what you heard? please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at pgalumpod. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. That's it for this week. I've been Roman Segel. And I'm still Andrew Tarvin. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.